Hey everyone, I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. So, President Trump has this Election Integrity Commission to look into fraudulent voting and fraudulent voter registration and improper voting. But leave it to Sherilyn Eiffel, president of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, to highlight the absurdity of that commission. So we don't have a problem of too many people showing up to vote. We have a problem of too few people showing up to vote. Eiffel gets into the ins and outs of voter suppression efforts in Texas and around the country, their down-ballot implications, and the omnipresent specter of race in all of this right now. Sherilyn Eiffel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. So, okay, I'm, I'm mystified by something. President Trump says that there is widespread voter fraud, that some three million people, undocumented people, voted in the election. That's not right. That's not true. No. No, it's not true. Uh, and as you watched it unfold, it was almost as though he, he threw it out there and then it became a story that he had to kind of stand by. And you heard him stand by it. And you heard his surrogates like Stephen Miller say, you know, there is proof that three million people voted illegally. So yes, he makes this fantastical claim that's clearly not true. But it is also true that others have made similar claims, that it has been a talking point of the far right for years, Mm -hmm. that there is widespread in-person voter fraud in this country. And so, you know, Trump being Trump, he he takes it to the (laughs) to the highest level. Right. He you know, he doubles down, triples down, you know, exponentially expands it. But the truth is that that trope, the idea of the undocumented person voting, the idea of African-Americans engaged in voter fraud. You remember during the Trump campaign, he said, you know, watch the urban areas Mm -hmm. and watch the illegals. But he's drawing from what has been the rhetoric of people like Hans von Spakowski at the Heritage Foundation, who now sits on the president's uh, Election Integrity Commission. Oh, we're going to talk about that. Chris Kobach, the Kansas Secretary of State, who's the co-chair of that commission. Mm -hmm. This has been, uh, you know, his longtime passion. And many leaders on the right have used this idea of widespread in-person voter fraud to justify these stringent voter ID laws that you have seen emerge over the past few years and all of the voter suppression tactics, including purging voter lists and so forth. And so when Mr. Trump said it, you know, it was outrageous. It was fantastic. It was over the top. But it built on a kind of core theme that the right has been developing for a very long time. Now, I got ahead of myself by asking you that first question because I originally wanted to start by talking about, I think it's a Shelby v. Holder. Yes. Um, And that was the Supreme Court case where a key provision of the Voting Rights Act was invalidated in 2013. And at the time, that was a shocking decision and that was really bad. And there was great hope that the Voting Rights Act, that Congress would do something, repair, repair the damage, and we'd be back on our way, especially since, what was it, the Senate passed it? 98 to zero. Yeah, basically (laughs) unanimously. And now here we are Mm. in a situation where you mentioned it, the Election Integrity Commission. Mm. If you can see me out there, I've got my air quotes. (laughs) What is the purpose of this Election Integrity Commission officially? And what is it really about? 
to your mind? Well, the good news is that the official purpose is actually not that far from <laughs> from the real purpose. In fact, just the <laughs> other day, the president referred to it as a voter fraud commission. So there's no question that this commission was created for the purpose of looking for this myth- mythical voter fraud, right? There have been numerous studies done over the years that have demonstrated that there is no widespread in-person voter fraud in the United States. Studies done by the Brennan Center demonstrate that, you know, there are more people who are struck by lightning uh, right. than engage in in-person voter fraud. The, the most comprehensive study, which looked at elections over a 10-year period, found only 31 cases of in-person voter fraud out of a billion ballots that were cast. A billion. A billion. So we're talking about a drop in the bucket. But what President Trump said after the election about the three million votes being illegally cast, remember, this was all to explain that he, in fact, in his mind, won the popular vote, which we know he did not win. So that's where the three million number came from. It was the number that was going to uh, demonstrate to everyone that, in fact, he won the popular vote over Hillary Clinton, which he did not. And he said, we're going to be looking into it. We're going to be studying it. Uh, And that was kind of our first inkling that he might try to do something official around this idea of voter fraud. That's some serious CYA for, you know, like like false CYA. So can we get specific about voter fraud? Mm -hmm. So of the billion ballots cast, this tiny, tiny number. What's one example of of voter, like real voter fraud? Well, we we had one on election day this year in which a, a woman in Iowa, a Trump supporter, voted twice. Right. She, she came back and voted for him again because she just loves him so much. Um, so now it's not an easy thing to do. That's, you know, to, to think about what what they're what they're claiming. Try to imagine what in-person voter fraud looks like. It means that an actual person goes into a polling place and says that they are somebody that they are not. Right. Um, they you know, I walk in and I say my name is Jonathan uh, part and the a is just missing in the book right mm-hmm. but I want to vote <laughs> and um, and presumably I'm then allowed to vote even though I wasn't you or I take the name of a dead person and I uh, vote in that person instead or I'm not legally allowed to vote because I'm undocumented but somehow I've managed to get a voter registration card or some other ID that allows me to to vote so so just imagining all those scenarios, first of all, it takes a very bold person. Yeah. Uh, there have to be a lot of serious holes in the system. And as you know, the biggest problem we have in the United States is voter turnout. It's actually our shameful numbers of people who turn out to vote, which is actually quite low compared to other Western democracies, including for the president of the United States. I think the highest figures we've had for turnout for the president of the United States is somewhere in the low 60s. Uh, but, but we're barely, you know, half of the electorate, a little over half of the electorate votes in, in our elections. So we don't have a problem of too many people showing up to vote. We have right. a problem of too few people showing up to vote. Now, where there can be voter fraud is around absentee ballots. That can happen. But that wouldn't be in any way uh, managed by the voter ID laws that you've seen proliferate. So what we really think is that if you were really concerned about in-person voter fraud, you would do things that would allow the individuals at the polls to be able to manage people stepping up to them and saying, I'm here to vote more easily. So you would encourage early voting, for example, because that lessens the crunch on election day and the number of lines. It gives the poll watcher more time to process people as they come in through the lines. Um, You would do all kinds of other things, but you wouldn't do what you've seen the right doing, which is impose these highly stringent 
voter ID laws that actually disenfranchise eligible voters. We demonstrated in Texas, for example, where we, along with other civil rights groups, are challenging that state's voter ID law, the most stringent voter ID law in the country. Um, we showed that there were 600,000 eligible voters that were disenfranchised. Wow. 600, that's the population of Baltimore, basically, wow. um, that in Texas were made ineligible by this voter ID law. It's fundamentally anti-democratic. Now, we won that case. We won it at trial. We've won it in the Court of Appeals twice. We've been back down to the district court. And what the Court of Appeals found in that case was that the state of Texas, the legislature, created that law intentionally to disenfranchise African-American and Latino voters. That's the Fifth Circuit, Federal Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. A, con a conservative court found that a legislature in this country sat down and created a voter ID law for the purpose of disenfranchising black and Latino voters. Why that's not our top line issue, right? Why the fact that this court found that, that the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals found the same true of the North Carolina uh, legislature and their voter suppression law, I mean, this to me is, an, is a kind of very powerful and important moment of crisis in our democracy when the legislatures of two states have been found by federal courts to have deliberately attempted to disenfranchise minority voters. And yet that's not the charge of this election integrity commission. Russian hacking. That's not the charge yeah, of this. I mean, come on. If anything, that's a that that is a much bigger deal. And as we're seeing, we're, we're learning that there were efforts not only it, it's not just about the DNC IDs and the fake news, but that there were literally attempts coming from Russian intelligence to hack into state election systems to 21 uh, different officials around the country. So you would think that that would be the right. reason why you would create a commission. But instead, the search for this unicorn, you know, the, the lost, <laughs> you know, in-person uh, voter fraud, um, that's what this commission is about. And so I think it's marrying these two things. President Trump's desire to prove that he won the popular vote, something that he cannot prove, and the right's long, long-time project of trying to create some justification for voter suppression. Um, and that justification is that there's widespread mm -hmm. voter fraud. All right. A couple things. So and since you're here you're and you are the expert on this, I please explain to me or respond to this thing that comes from the right all the time when it comes to being made to present identification when you go to vote. They say, well, I whenever I go into an office building or an airport or wherever, I I have to show ID. And there's nothing wrong with that. Why, why shouldn't we have that same requirement when you go in to vote the most sacred action of our democracy? It's a great argument you know, on their side, because I think for you and for me, Jonathan, we would think, you know, I've got an ID. What's the big deal? And I think for many middle class people who drive and who have jobs and who are engaged in urban life, um, it is not a hardship to present that ID. But for people who are rural voters, for young people who may not have access to a car, for poor people um, who don't have access to the funds that you need to be able to get the ID, it actually is a hardship. And unlike entering an office building, the Supreme Court has said that the right to vote is preservative of all rights. It is the one exercise that we engage in that is our ultimate expression of citizenship. It is not to be compared to going into, um, you know, uh, an office building. It is the thing that marks you and I 
as equal. It is the one thing that each citizen is entitled to do. And it's protected by the Constitution. And if there is a reason for identification, and we can justify the identification, that's one story. But that's not what we're dealing with. People have always had to show identification when they voted of one form or another. So I always say to people, it's not about, you know, voter ID or not voter ID. It's about what kind of ID. Ah, yes. Right? Yes. So you used to go up to the polls and they have your name in a book and maybe they want to verify that it's you. And you could pull out your bank statement that has your address on it. Or you could pull out your um, utility bill. Right. Because really all the poll watcher wants to know is that you actually reside right in that 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 district. So you're at the right polling place. So there are forms of ID. Right. That's the key. So that you're at the right, you're polling, at the right place, polling place, not that you are not eligible That's to right. vote. Or or our client in, in Texas, um, you know, university students who go to state schools. Mm-hmm. She used to be able to use her University of Texas university ID to vote. She actually went to Prairie View uh, A&M, but she could use her state school ID to vote. After this voter ID law in Texas, no longer could a university student at a state school use their state university ID to vote. So it wasn't just that you had to have ID, it's that you had to have a particular kind of government-issued photo ID. You could no longer use, if you were a government employee, your employee ID. Even a government employee? You couldn't use that ID. This is why the court said they literally walked around the identification that they thought racial minorities were more likely to have. So government ID, you could no longer use your tribal ID if you were Native American. But you could use a concealed gun carry permit. Come on now. You can't make up Texas. This is real. (laughs) This is real. So so they walked around. the, The same in North Carolina with their voter suppression law, right? What did they get rid of? The Sunday early voting, right? Because they knew souls, souls to, to the, the polls. polls. Exactly. Yeah. Was, was something that African-Americans engaged in after church. They would engage in their civic responsibility. My pastor, for example, would always say, if you don't vote, don't tell anybody I'm your pastor. Oh. I, 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 I'm not claiming you. Shame. You are You are obligated as mm-hmm. an American to engage civically just as you're obligated to come to church and to engage in worship and so forth. So this is a tradition in the African-American community. And the North Carolina legislature deliberately tried to undermine that effort, right, by eliminating that Sunday early voting. So we're not talking about ID or no ID or the integrity of the election process. We're talking about the very deliberate effort to... Um, make it less likely that minority voters would have what was necessary or would be able to access the polls as easily as they did and could before that Shelby decision that you talked about. The, the Shelby decision essentially eliminated the requirement of jurisdictions throughout the South, but in places in the North as well, to um, submit to a federal authority, either the attorney general or a federal district court in the District of Columbia, any voting change that they wanted to make. So the Texas voter ID law, for example, is a law that they had attempted to promulgate a couple of years before, and we had challenged it under that preclearance provision of the Voting Rights Act, and they had been prevented from imposing this voter ID law. Then the Shelby decision comes down, and I remember the very day of that decision in June 2013. Two hours later, the Attorney General of Texas tweets out his intention of resuscitating this voter ID law that had been uh, stopped under the preclearance provision. Well, now here we are. It's 2017. As I said, we've won this that trial. We've, we've won it in the Court of Appeals. But, you know, it's four years since since 2013. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, sure, there's been a presidential election in Texas, but you know what there, there also have been? 
There's also been school board elections and county commission elections and town council elections and justice of the peace elections and constable elections and district attorney elections and water commission elections and sheriff elections. And in all of those elections, those are the elections in which we identified across the state that 600,000 people were disenfranchised by those laws. That is an outrage. That is a democratic crisis. And that's what we should be responding to, not responding to this mythological idea of voter fraud and trying to satisfy the president's need to believe that he won the popular vote. Explain these efforts to me. Why, why are, are people who say they so revere the Constitution and so want the country to be run according to the Constitution go to such efforts to keep people from exercising their constitutional right to vote? Well, it's about what it's always been about. It's about power and it's about race. And I say that very specifically because, you know, when I do this work, you know, and I was a young voting rights attorney at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the organization I now lead in the late 1980s, early 1990s. So I'm very familiar with this particular area of work. And people say to me all the time that, you know, this is just about partisan politics. It's not has nothing to do with race. I, I don't deny that partisan politics plays a role. I think we have reached a point where the two have come together in very clear alignment. But I remind people of how long, you know, we've been engaged in this voting rights work. You know, Thurgood Marshall often described his most important case not as Brown versus Board of Education, but as a case he won in 1944 in Texas, Smith versus Allwright, which was his case successfully challenging in the United States Supreme Court the Texas all-white Democratic primary, right? On the theory, this is what, so what the party said in those days was, we're, we're a private entity. We're not the state, so we can do whatever we want to do. Hmm. And if we, do, we only want to let white people vote in our primary, we can do that, Right. And Thurgood Marshall challenged that all the way up to the Supreme Court and said, no, no, this is part of the state election structure, right? You can't, you can't just have – and remember, in those days in the South, the Democratic Party was the party that controlled right. everything, right, before the, the parties switched really based on race, around, right. around exactly. issues of race, right? So, so now we've, we've flipped it, right? And now people say, well, it's only partisan politics. Well, it wasn't only partisan politics then in 1944. It was about race, and it's still about race. Um, and so if you, if you really go to the roots of this work – Look, I'm you know, old enough without revealing my age to, to <laughs> actually, as a young voting rights attorney, have, have sued Democratic governors, right, who, who you know, then still existed in the South mm-hmm. um, you know, when we challenged uh, various voting practices. So I know that if you look at the arc of this work, you know, the parties may change, but the one thing that doesn't change is race. Who are they trying to disenfranchise? It's race. Um, And so when we ask, why do people do this? Look, you know, uh, we just have to be very candid about race in this country at this moment. Let's remember what massive resistance was after the Brown versus Board of Education decision. That was, you know, a manifesto signed by 101 members of Congress that they would resist the Brown versus Board of Education decision by all legal means that they could. This was a decision from the United States Supreme Court and a manifesto signed by 101 congressmen uh, that they would resist Brown versus Board of Education. So I'm not at all 
confused or alarmed by the idea that people who say they revere our democratic system, say they revere the Constitution, can also be working to undermine the rights of those you know, that, that who, who they disfavor and can be working to undermine constitutional rights at the same time that they are publicly declaring themselves to be the most strong adherence mm-hmm. to constitutional democracy. You know, given what you, you said earlier about the centrality of race to this effort, particularly of, of, of voter suppression, why on earth do you think Chief Justice Roberts, because he was the one in the Shelby decision who basically said, paraphrasing here, eh, race isn't a big deal anymore. Well, you know, it's interesting. I've thought about this a lot. I mean, it was a pretty shocking decision, particularly for those of us who, who do this work. We, we continue to work almost exclusively in the South. Um, we, we, we do cases outside of the South, but we have really maintained our presence there in large measure because we think that it's so important to really go where the problems are deeply intense um, and where there is this strong history. And, you know, what I will say about Chief Justice Roberts' decision is that it was his own conception, right, of where we are in this country. And it wasn't based in fact. It wasn't based in reality. It was based based in a very narrow view about where we are on race. He wasn't even willing to defer to Congress's view. Remember, Congress had just reauthorized the Voting Rights Act in 2006. And that decision, as as we talked about, you know, was nearly unanimous, 98 to 0 in the Senate. I think it was 393 to 33 in the House. You can't get votes like that today for anything. Well, Justice Scalia at oral argument said, well, I know why it was unanimous. It's because, you know, it's a racial entitlement. And nobody wants to be seen to be against a racial. It was it was Holy shocking. Sm- it was wow. unbelievable. Oh, okay. It was in a packed. I'd forgotten about that. In a packed that. courtroom, um, and so so this decision was really shocking. But you know what I wondered? I wondered two years later if if Justice Roberts could have even written that same decision. Hmm. Why do you say why, why do you say that? Well, two years by by two years later by 2015, we'd had Ferguson. Ah yes. We'd had Eric Garner. You know, we were really knee deep into the true revelation on public in public display, right? That even people who maybe lived a very narrow world in which all you know racism seemed to be over mm-hmm. <laughs> now had to recognize that there still was a very powerful and virulent problem with race in this country. You saw all the voter ID laws get proliferated around the country. I mean, I think by the time you got to 2015, certainly 2016, right? By the time you'd seen Walter Scott shot in that park in North Charleston, South Carolina, I'm not sure you could write that opinion the way Justice Roberts wrote it and have it pass the laugh test. Mm -hmm. So it came at a moment when I think he thought he could advance that view. And and to be fair, there were many other people who also, you know, said things like, the president is African-American. The attorney general is African-American. You know, you, you know that, oh, that you yeah. and I both know this, that there are many people who said, you know, we have arrived. Right. right? Racism's over. Right. And so so it, 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 he, he issued that decision at a moment in which there was, you know, there, there were people who had a, at least some people who had a receptive ear to that. But it was at odds with reality on the ground. And this is what disturbs me in some ways about what I think are the deficiencies on the Supreme Court. And it really is not about any individual justice. It's about the makeup of the justices themselves. It's about why Thurgood Marshall was so important to be on the Supreme Court, because no one justice's experiences encompass 
all of the experiences of this country. And one of the things that Marshall brought to the bench, because he had practiced as a civil rights lawyer, because he had been in the South litigating these cases, was that he had an experience that none of the other justices had. And they all said it after he left the bench that, you know, Justice Rehnquist and White, they all wrote these wonderful encomiums to Marshall. And, and it was about what he brought into the conference room, right? That, he, that I remember Justice White said something like, he told us what we should have known, but maybe didn't want to know, right? And his ability to say, no, this is what really happens when the sheriff brings you in. This is what the so-called interview really looks like. Here's what it really means when a jury with this composition uh, issues this kind of verdict. He had that experience. And I think um, what, what, what has been missing is that you see Justice Sotomayor taking up that mantle. You know, you look at dissents from her in cases like Utah versus Strife and others where she talks powerfully because remember, she's a she's not just a former prosecutor. There are other former prosecutors uh, on the court, but they're U.S. attorneys, federal federal prosecutors. She was a she was in the Manhattan D.A.'s office. Right. You can't get any more real than that. And so she understands, you know, what it looks like to really pick a jury, what it looks like to do a voir dire, what it what what police do and and don't do. You know, she understands that. And so you if you read her opinions and I think she's really taken up this very powerful role of of speaking the truth. She's speaking. But from not only what the evidence is that's that's uh, brought to the court by the parties, but she's able to interpret that information. She's able to interpret that record with that in a way that comes out of her own understanding of the way it actually works, the justice system actually works. And so I just think Robert's decision in that case was just him imposing his own vision, right, of where we were on race to supplant the vision of Congress, which, by the way, was based on um, extensive hearings that Congress had had around the country with, you know, witnesses, 90 witnesses and, um, you know, 15,000 pages of, of testimony. I mean, they'd done their homework and he was willing to supplant that for his own view. So let's let, let's talk about him because we, we you brought him up, the 44th president of the United States, Barack Obama, who loomed large in clearly that narrow decision written by Chief Justice Roberts, who looms large even today, six months after he's out of office over the current administration. What role did and does he continue to play um, in our national psyche, conversation, understanding of race? Well, I think it's very early to tell in some ways because I think the you have to factor in this last election in understanding, you know, how the presidency of Barack Obama really has affected the American psyche. I, I certainly can, you know, speak about what I think it did for me and, and did for other African Americans like me. Um, I, you know, I do think that we were very proud, and I remain actually very proud. Mm-hmm. I'm, 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 I feel perfectly comfortable saying that as an African American woman. I agree. Um, and you know, being raised in my home, we were big political junkies, and I grew up watching politics and being deeply concerned about electoral politics and having my own idols and so forth. And 
I think it was exciting for all of us, you know, just even the night that, you know, he was elected and just thinking about my dad and who didn't get to see this. And, you know, this was really, really powerful. I think it's also true that I was incredibly proud and remain incredibly proud of how he conducted himself mm-hmm. in office, which I think was at the highest level of respect and dignity and intelligence and it was really quite extraordinary. And every American should be proud of that, by the way, not just African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you there are two instances that remain in my mind, and I actually think of them quite often, um, one, one for very obvious reasons. The first one was when the president had a kind of a meeting or summit or something around health care. And he invited all of the senators to come in, and, and they sat around a table, and they, you know, they could express their concerns, their questions, and so forth. And the president, I remember, I think he had his you know, jacket off. His sleeves were rolled up. There were big books in front mm-hmm. of him. It wasn't at all ceremonial for him. He, he had all the binders in front of him, and he had all the answers, and he, was, he had a full mastery of the legislation that was being proposed, and he was ready, in fact, eager to answer questions and to be accommodating where he could. I mean, he was fully engaged. He was the the hands-on CEO. I thought it was an astonishing performance of leadership. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe it embarrassed some of his opponents because he was so good. But for me, I thought that was really powerful. The second one for me was a meeting I was actually in, and that was um, during a very painful period and actually we just passed the anniversary of it, right after the almost back-to-back killings in, of, of Alton Sterling in, in Louisiana right. and Philando Castile, Castile. In, um, Saint Paul, in Minnesota and then the killing of the police officers um, in, right, in right. Dallas. Yeah, so it was, it was bad news. It was a terrible, I can just tell you from my own work, and we're deeply engaged in issues around policing reform, it was a terrible, terrible, really devastating week. And the president called this meeting of, you know, some of us activists and civil rights activists, but lots of law enforcement and the governor of Louisiana was there. And, you know, it was it was um, it was a really, really powerful meeting in which nobody was happy. You know, mm-hmm. every it was extremely tense. And the president ran that meeting for four hours. Wow. Four hours. The president of the United States sat around a table no staff whispering in his ear, took off his jacket, encouraged us to take ours, rolled up his sleeves, could engage each person, could ask questions, could push. At the end of the meeting, kind of summarized, you know, where we agreed and where we disagreed and what some of the issues were. So when I think about President Obama, I think about moments like that, about what it meant to see that kind of engaged leadership and and courage to bring us all into that room uh, together. Um, at this moment of incredible pain. So so I think that there's an aspect to his presidency that was really powerful. There's a symbolic aspect to to our kids, to people around the country, that America kind of got over that hump. We did do it. That can't be taken away mm-hmm. from this country. We twice. did twice elect an unapologetically African-American president and their family, you know, really set an example and were incredibly popular and extraordinary. That happened in this country. I know there are many people who want to pretend that that now is all, you know, goes into thin air or is irrelevant. We should recognize that we did do that and that that does say something about this country um, and that his exercise of that leadership and the the way that he did it um, also says something about who we are as African-American people. Um, And so that's powerful. But I do think that there's a backlash, as there always is in Mm -hmm. this country, to that. And I think that maybe we did not fully appreciate how powerful that backlash would be. I think many of us maybe didn't appreciate that, that, that there are many people who were seething, watching the things I was watching that I felt proud of. 
that it was that it was um, challenging other people in ways that made them deeply uncomfortable. I think that you know the appeal to to whiteness is a real thing mm-hmm. in this country and always has been. And you know I think we had managed it for decades after the after the civil rights movement. We've had many, many civil rights challenges. Racism has clearly still been part of American life. But there was an understanding that to be racist was actually taboo. There was an understanding that you that America was invested in the image of itself as a place of equality and justice. And what I think I find most alarming in the moment that we're in right now is that it's not entirely clear to me that there is um, as widespread investment in that image of America as I thought there was. I thought that was part of the brand that America was trying to export. Right. And what, what we're seeing today, and I really believe that maybe we will not know how much, almost like a, almost like a kid, you know, how much we are giving away, how hard it is to build honor, how hard it is to build leadership, how hard it is to build a set of principles that have power and vision behind them so powerful that you can make people from completely different countries who don't speak your language believe in it as well. That that is a project that really was given to this country by the activism of civil rights leaders and average people who put their lives on the line to make what you could say about America in 1965 different than what you had to say about America in 1955 or 45, right? That transformation happened because people pushed. They didn't walk away from this country. They pushed, and they believed they could make that transformation happen. And so when you hear people talking about America, land of equality, justice, and so forth, that didn't just come out of the sky, and it actually, by the way, was not brought to us by the framers. It was brought to us ultimately by average people in the 1950s and 1960s who really pushed to make the words on the paper have true meaning. And I just think that's powerful. It's a powerful part of our history, and and we've been able to export it, and it's uh, lifted us as a country. It's made us better. And I worry, and it's very troubling to see how cavalierly many people seem to be willing to let it go. Sherilyn Eiffel, president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're going to have to have you back because we, I've got a whole docket of things <laughs> that we didn't even get to. But oh, this was wonderful. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Hi, I'm James Holman, national political correspondent for The Washington Post and author of The Daily 202 Newsletter. I'm excited to announce we're launching a new audio briefing called The Daily 202's Big Idea. Every morning, I'll give you a quick summary of the day's biggest political headlines, as well as analysis of one of the day's most important stories. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts and on your Amazon Echo device or Google Home. By the way, if you want to subscribe to the Daily 202's email newsletter, you can do so by visiting WashingtonPost.com slash newsletters. I'm really looking forward to it. I hope you'll listen. Thanks. The Washington 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 Post. Post.